Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. Did you ever ask yourself, why did God create this world? Why did he fill it with all the resources that he did? Why is it that you and I exist? You see, God is perfect. God lacks nothing. He does nothing for himself because he needs nothing. But God is a gracious, merciful, loving, good God. And therefore, in order to demonstrate that, he created this world. The Bible says that the heavens and the earth, they declare the glory of God. His creation shows that God is forever wise, that this world was created with an order, with a distinction. And therefore, God shares all of himself with us through his revelation. So whatever God does, it's not for him. It doesn't bless him. It doesn't improve him. He is perfect eternally. So what he does to us, for us, is for our good. He is a blessed God. And it's very important that we remember that when we look at all scripture, but especially the psalm that we're going to study together in this time together. So take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm 50. Now, again, one of the predominant themes of this psalm is judgment. And we need to mature. We need to see things from God's point of view, how scripture teaches us. And God's judgment has a good outcome. And if you are part of his covenant people, if you have been redeemed by his grace, experienced his love, been regenerated and become a new creation in Messiah, then that judgment is going to be a time of vindication. It is going to be a time that you're going to be positioned where you need to be, where you want to be, where you ought to be for all of eternity. God's judgment has wonderful outcomes for his covenant people. So as I said, look with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 50, and we're going to begin with verse 1 where it says, a psalm, and we have a new author. Here we have the word asaf, a name, an individual. So he is the writer of this psalm. Look again at verse 1, a psalm of asaf, and then the next word is the word el in Hebrew, meaning God. And it's followed by Elohim Hashem, the Lord God. So if we translate it literally, and I realize that many English translations, and I'm assuming this is true for other languages as well, they don't like redundancy. But it's not for us to like or not like. We need to translate it literally. So it literally says, 
God, the Lord God, has spoken. And he has spoken, and it says, and he has called to the earth. Or literally, simply called the earth, and the implication is, he's called it into being. He spoke, and therefore, it was. God is able to create, to bring about change simply through his spoken word. And this should cause us to put emphasis upon his written word as well. Through his word, change comes about. His spoken word and also his written word brings change into our life and our circumstances. So once more, God, the Lord God has spoken. He has called, and the implication is he's called the earth, called to the earth. And then it says, from the east, and then the word sun, meaning the setting of the sun unto its coming. So it's speaking about him putting things in order. That God has spoken, and from the setting of the sun to its rising, it speaks of a day. Vayihi er, vayihi boker, yom achad. It came about evening. It came about morning one day. So we're speaking about God's consistency, what he does each day in his creation. And notice it speaks in the next verse from Zion. This tells us that he's speaking to the world, but he is going to be speaking about a kingdom perspective from Zion. Again, whenever that word Zion or Zion in English appears, it gives the passage a kingdom context. So God has created this world and that he has spoken. He has maintained this world daily, but it's moving towards something. It's moving to a new reality, a kingdom reality. And this kingdom reality, it says, from Zion, from Zion. And then it speaks about the perfection of his beauty that there's something abnormal, something that's not natural, and that's going to be the kingdom of God. The world that we're living in now is one of nature. It is from this creation. But God, from Zion, he is going to speak, and he is going to bring about a new reality, that which is different, that which, which is a change from the norm. And it speaks about the beauty, the beauty of his perfection. See, this world was created by the perfect God, but there was a problem. And that is that it was stained by sin, the sin of a man and a woman, humanity. And therefore, this world in which we live is damaged. It is in need of a repair, a tikkun. And that repair comes by way of redemption. And the outcome of redemption is going to be God's perfection. And his perfection is beauty. And then it says, with this, God has appeared. Meaning this, when this kingdom is established, when one can behold the beauty of his perfection, it's all an outcome of God having come his presence in a unique way, in a new way, into this world. Now, we need to be careful because God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God is also 
omnipresent. He is everywhere. But in the same way that there was something unique about the temple. The temple is the house of God. God dwells where? All places, but in a unique way, in a special way, that he dwelt in the temple. And in a similar way, there's going to be a unique change. Where God, who is not only omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, omniscient, and he's also omnipresent. He's in all places. But when God establishes his kingdom, there's going to be a unique manifestation of the presence of God throughout that kingdom. And this is why it speaks of Elohim, Hophia, God has appeared. And then in verse 3 it says, Our God will come and he will not be silent. Meaning simply that God is going to come and he is going to bring change. He is going to not be silent. What did we learn? God brings change by speaking. So God's coming into this world. He's not going to be silent, meaning he's going to speak, and he's going to bring about a change, a change that reflects the, the beauty of his perfection, meaning the kingdom of God. How is he going to bring about that change? Well, notice the next part of verse 3. It says, fire before him will devour. So God is going to set forth fire, a devouring fire that goes before him, that is going to precede his coming, him filling this world with his glory. A devouring fire, and that is a reference, and I think we all would agree with this. This is a reference to his judgment. So fire will go out before him, consuming. And it says, around him. And then we have a word which means a, a strong wind. Old English, a tempest, a storm, a powerful storm. And it ends with the word me'od, which means exceedingly or very. So a very powerful storm. And this is the storm of his judgment of his wrath that's going to go through. Now look at verse 4. He will call to the heavens above and to the earth. And what is he going to do? This proclamation that he's going to make within this creation is going to be for a judgment of his people. Now we can understand this in one of two ways. One way is that God's going to vindicate his covenant people. That's true. But we can see his people simply meaning in a very broad sense those individuals that he's created. He is going to set judgment. For those who have a covenant relationship, they're going to experience vindication. For those who do not have a covenant relationship, those who are against the purposes of God, God's judgment is going to be a, a judgment of destruction and condemnation. So God's judgment comes, and think of it this way. We've all heard about a coin, a two-headed coin, two sides. And one side of this coin of God's judgment is going to be destruction, condemnation, annihilation, punishment. But the other side of that coin is going to be vindication, justification. It's going to be brought into a fulfillment of God's purposes, his plans 
where one becomes a recipient of the promises and the blessings of God. So God is going to set this world for judgment. Verse 5. Gather to me. Now, this is a word of invitation. Gather to me. And who does he speak to? It says here, Chasidai. Now, this is a word that speaks of those who are recipients of God's grace. So those who have received God's grace are called to come unto him, to present themselves, to respond to him. And then it to help us understand fuller what it means, God's ones who have received his grace, it says, Corte Briti. Those who have entered into, cut, made, established my covenant. And then the last phrase is Ale Zavak. Zavak is a, a offering. And it speaks about those who have received God's grace, those who have entered into a covenant with him, what are they going to be wanting to do? Well, this, this offerings of a sacrifice, bringing before him that, that offering is in a, a, a description. It hints towards worship. So one receives grace. That grace brings him into a covenant relationship. And that relationship is going to manifest itself through worship. That's what the people of God are going to do. This is what he's saying. And then verse 6 writes, Declare, O heavens, his righteousness. So the heavens... Declare his righteousness. For God, he judges. And then the last word, Selah, a word of emphasis according to most scholars. So the heavens, they declare the righteousness of God. For God, he is going to judge. This is what God's going to do. His judgment set things in order. It brings about a proper outcome. And that's why it's so important that we look for the signs of God's judgment as it draws near. And that reality should encourage us, if we need encouragement, to be faithful, to be diligent, to be obedient to his instruction. But as these times move forward where God's judgment becomes clearly evident, it should spur us, encourage us, place a sense of urgency upon us for doing God's will. Verse 7. He says, hear my people and I will speak. So let's make this personal. Ask yourself a question. Are you listening to God? Have you put yourself in a position whereby when God speaks that you can hear? And not just hear meaning come to knowledge, but put that knowledge into action. So look again, verse, verse 7. Hear my people, and I will speak. And who is his people? Well, it says here, Israel. And I will testify, bear witness unto you. So God is speaking. He is testifying to his people. And notice how Israel is at the center of this. Then he says, O God. Your God am I. So God is revealing himself, not just as the supreme God, but your God. And once again, he's speaking to his people, Israel. And he says, 
God is your God. This is who I am. Verse 8. Not concerning your sacrifice, I will reprove you. He says it's not because of these sacrifices in and of themselves. And your burnt offerings, which are before me continually. So he's saying it's not because of these acts. God commanded them. But nevertheless, we need to see them in the proper context of what he's saying. So initially he says, I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to bring reproach upon you for your sacrifices that you are offering up these burnt offerings before me continually. He says, I'm not going to take from your house a bull and from your folds goats. Now, what God is saying is, I'm not condemning you because of these sacrifices, but I'm not taking them from you, meaning I don't need these. These are not something that, that I have to have, that I'm addicted to them, I need them, that they bring some, some satisfaction unto me that I'm lacking. So don't think that simply uh, writing out a check doing something that's good that is offering him something is what he requires that he's dependent upon us doing this he's saying certainly not and then he says in verse 9 excuse me verse 10 for to me is all the beast of the force now literally it says he leave for to me all of the the beasts of the force and the animals upon a thousand mountains so god's saying all these things that you offer up they're mine to begin with you're not giving me something you're not not adding to me in any way that's first and foremost now let's pause has god commanded these sacrifices and offerings yes he has in regard to sin offerings atonement redemption all of these things but here again does god need them he does not when we offer up a sin offering a burnt offering who's it for it's for us it's to make amends it is to heal the broken relationship it's to acknowledge our sin and seek god's forgiveness his mercy it's not for him he already owns all things everything belongs to him now verse 11 he says i have known all the fowl of the mountains all these birds he knows he's acquainted with they belong to him and he says and the the beasts of my fields are with me he says these already belong to me they are mine they're not yours when you offer them up it's for your benefit you are taking what belongs to me and offering back. There's no, no advantage for me. I'm providing them unto you. So God is underscoring, we don't give him anything. We are not doing anything for him. Again, God is perfect. He is complete. He is eternal. He never has a bad day. He doesn't have a day that he's more joyful and less he is perfect always. He is complete always. 
This is what Asaf, the author, is telling us. Everything that he commands us is for humanity's best interest. It does not change God. Then he says, now verse 12, If I was hungry, would not I have said to you? For to me is the world and its fullness. Once more, God lacks nothing. This is what the psalmist is telling us. You can't do anything for God. We don't bless him in the, the normal understanding of blessing God. Now, should we praise him, thank him, bless his name? Absolutely. But again, this doesn't add anything to God. This doesn't change him. God does not change. He's unchangeable. Immutable is the theological term that, that people use to, to proclaim this. He also says, now verse 13, he says, uh, do I eat the flesh of, of fat, fat bulls and, and cows? And do I drink the blood of goats? He says, really, when you offer them up, do I sit down and, and fast or feast upon them? Do I drink the blood of these animals? Do I actually receive it personally? No. We don't feed God. We don't give him drink. None of these things are for him. We do that to learn truth and to demonstrate our love and commitment. But it's not for him. It's to bring about a change in us. And this just underscores a principle, and I've shared this many times, but I'll repeat it again. And that is this. If you were to ask most people, do you need change in your life? You ought to say, yes, I do. Now, you may be walking with God. You may be doing your best to obey God, but you can grow more. You can mature more in the faith. You can be a better servant. You can do greater things. So we all need change, a righteous, a godly change in our life. And what the principle is this. The word of God is telling us it's worship that brings change to us. Worship doesn't bring change to God. God cannot change because he's perfect. He cannot be improved and he cannot be lessened from perfection. He is eternal. What does the scripture say in regard to Yeshua? But the same thing is true to his father. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. Nothing changes with him. Therefore, worship is necessary not for God. He gets nothing from it. It is for us. It brings change into our life. Verse 14. A sacrifice to God of thanksgiving. A, a peace offering to the Most High. And now he's speaking, actually, when I said peace offering, I looked at it incorrectly. It's the word for, for a vow. Your vows you will pay. Now let me just use this mistake of mine as a teaching moment. The word for pain is also the word for peace. You all know the word that's usually translated peace, the word shalom. The word shalom comes from a verb. Obviously shalom is a noun, but it comes from a verb which means to pay. So he says here, it's a command, not peace offerings, but He's saying, pay your vows. Do what you're called to do. Why? What's the principle that he's learned? He's learning us. 
it is that worship brings about a good change. So what we ought to do is to give God thanks and that we should fulfill our obligations, the vows we make, and this is in regard to offerings, what we're going to pay to God, we should pay to who? Well, here we see a different term for God, Elyon, the most high God. So let me read this verse again correctly. The sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. The implication is make sacrifices of thanksgiving to God and pay your vows to the most high God. And doing so, there's a benefit, not for God, but for us. When we are faithful to worship him, do what he requires. What does he say? Look at verse 15. And call upon me on the day of trouble. When we are worshiping God, acknowledging God properly, who he is, the most high God. Therefore, when we are doing those things in the state of obedience, following the instructions of God, when there's that day of trouble, we will be able to call and we can have assurance that he's going to respond. Look again at verse 15 where he says, and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. So this word for delivering is a word of release. It's moving, removing the pressure, the stress, the anxiety from us. And when, and God does that, why? Because when we are in the midst of anxiety, stress, hardships, problems, it's, it's hard to worship God. We ought to. We are commanded to. But when God releases us from this, when we experience deliverance, then we're in a better position to honor God. And so God says, in the day of trouble, call. I'm going to set you free. And what's the outcome of that? You will give me glory. You will honor me. Now look at verse 16. But to the wicked one, God has said, what is to you that you should speak my statutes and lift up my covenant upon your mouth? Those who are not committed to God's will, those who are expressing wickedness, we have no part. Do not speak about God's commands, his laws, and do not speak about his, his covenant. None of these things are relevant. You are not allowed to speak about these things. This is what he's revealing. There's no connection. They have no relationship to you. Only those who are indeed in a covenantal relationship with God, who wants to worship him. And then he says in verse 17, speaking about those who are indeed the wicked ones, it uses the word here in verse, verse uh, uh, 16, rasha, wickedness. And he says, you, speaking to the wicked ones, now verse 17, you have hated, and the word here is musar. Musar are our ethics. Musar comes from a concept of, of disciplining oneself in regard to expressing, living, manifesting what is ethical. 
and and such a person who is wicked they hate god's god's ethics they don't like his rules they don't like his restrictions and therefore they they violate them so he says you speaking to the wicked ones that he addressed in the previous verse you have hated my my morals is another way that we can translate and my words you have cast behind you there, there's something that you've, you've passed by them. You haven't done them. You haven't taken hold of them. You haven't applied them to your life. You're not keeping them. They're behind you. You have departed from them. And if, Ganav, a thief, you shall see, you shall run with him. Now, there is a, a difference with this word between the Septuagint and some Hebrew manuscripts and what the Masoretic text says. I have here the Masoretic text, and it speaks about being joined together, being one with, being in agreement with. So it's saying here, if there's a thief that's before you and he's stealing, you're going to want to join that. Now, in the other rendering of this word, it means that you're going to run with them, but the outcome is the same, that you're going to be with them, join with them. And with adulterers, he says, is your portion. You are going to set yourself, your hopes, your dreams, your wants with those who are adulterers. And here, probably adultery is speaking about idolatry. That you are going to put your hope, your portions, you're going to invest in idolatry because idols promise you exactly what you want. God promises you his will. Do you really want his will. This is what it comes down to. Verse, verse 19. Your mouth has sent forth with evil. Meaning your mouth sets forth, it's probably an idiom for speaking, that which is evil. And your tongue has joined together with deceit. And here, this word for join together means to participate with or to go alongside of in a sense of supporting. So the ones who are wicked, they join themselves to thievery and adultery. They violate agreements. They speak lies. They speak deceit. This is what he's calling. And furthermore, he says, verse 20, you sit with your brother and you speak meaning that you you join with him and you speak with your brother and what do you say well it says with the son of your mother so another idiom for brother you give and this is the word slander so if we look at this same verse again he says you sit with your brother and you speak what do you say it's going to reveal to us in the second part of this verse and with the son of your mother, your brother, it says, you give slander. So now we know what they speak. Such people speak in an unkind way. They're wanting to bring contempt. Now, a true believer, we want to bless. We want to lift up that person in the things of God. We want that person to have a glorious testimony, a righteous witness, a praiseworthy life. But, but the ones who are wicked, they speak against, they speak slander. Now look at verse, verse 21. These things you have done 
And the implication is, and I will be silent. Now, again, it's foreshadowing what we talked about earlier. Judgment. Remember, God says earlier on, he's coming. He's going to be that devouring fire that's going to go forth and he's going to judge his people. He is going to bring destruction around those who do not have a covenant relationship with him, who have not part of his grace, have not received that grace. So here he says, verse 21, these things you have done, you're guilty. And then he says, and I will be, be still or silent. I won't respond. The implication is, sure he will. And that's why he says, you, you have, have likened that, that I should be like this. Do you think that, that I am going to be like that? To be silent, to be tolerant of that? See, he's told us that he's perfect in every way. So he's going to want perfection. And perfection comes out of redemption because redemption is what's necessary to be in a covenant relationship. Why is that so important? Well, when I'm in a covenant relationship with God, what does God do? He works. He goes to work in my life for the purpose of edifying. And we know the good work that he's begun, he's going to complete. We're going to arrive by God's work to the state of perfection. When will that be? When I get a new body, a kingdom body, ultimately. God's going to finish that work of edification by giving me a new body. When Messiah returns and calls us up unto him, into his kingdom, prior to his judgment, his wrath coming. So we see here, he says to the people, have, have you, you think I'm going to be silent? With the midst of these things? Do you, is this how you have likened me to one that's, that's approving of such things, that participates in such things? He says, I will, and this is a word for, for reproving. It's a word of punishment. He says, I will punish you. And I will do this, he says, arranging things. And this is a word for just that, to put things in order, to arrange things before your eyes. Now, he's still speaking about the wicked primarily. He says, have you likened me to someone who, is, who, who would condone this, who would participate? Is that what you think I'm like? That I'm going to stand idly by and not allow a judgment, punishment to come upon such people? No, he says. You're going to see my, my reproof, my discipline with your own eyes as I put things into order. Verse 22, he says, understand this, please. Do not be forgetters of God. Let's see if we forget God, if we ignore this, if we don't understand the truth of God, of his judgment. He says, less, if you mess up on this and don't understand that God does the things in his order, if you mess up with that, he says, less, I will tear you, and the implication is tear you into pieces. Now, in the original, it just says pen et rof, lest I tear. And what's the outcome? When God tears, and this is a, an idiom of judgment, he says, en matzil, there will not be anyone to help. Now, in modern Hebrew, and I believe I've mentioned this before in a couple different lessons, 
The word matzil is in modern Hebrew, it's a lifeguard, someone who saves you, delivers you, causes you to, to be one who is rescued. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to tear into pieces and there won't be anyone to save you, to rescue you, deliver you from this. And that's why he tells us, let's be individuals. And now he's talking about those who don't want to be torn up, that do not want to be destroyed, that are seeking a savior, a deliverer. He says, if that describes you and you're not the wicked ones, then he says, look if you would to verse 23. A sacrifice of thanksgiving, he will honor me and will set the way, will set the proper way. And I will see him with the salvation of God. Now, what this verse is talking about is how God's going to work mightily in his people's life, that he's going to do something. He says, with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, he will honor me. Now, the implication is, with this sacrifice of thanksgiving, the one who makes it is going to honor God. That's who's speaking. And then it says, God, the same one is going to set things in order. We need to want that. We need the desire, the order of God. And he says, I will show him, this is God, I will show him, what? The salvation of God. Now, some have taken this to be Messiah, that Messiah is going to work, that he's going to give a sacrifice. That sacrifice will bring honor to the believer. And that's going to bring the outcome of God's order into their life, God's way into their life, that God will, through Messiah, show him the salvation of God. So however you want to understand it, we know something. Good things are happening. So what he's saying here is get serious about worship. Worship is going to bring you into the glory of God. And through this experience, you are going to know the salvation. God's going to show you his salvation. And here salvation is being thought of as victory and the outcome of victory where most scholars see when he says, I will show you salvation, you will experience that kingdom reality. So a wonderful psalm about two possibilities. Are you going to experience God's judgment for the outcome of condemnation and destruction? Or are you going to be the recipients when God judges of his vindication, of his victory, of him bringing you into the fulfillment of his promises. A psalm that has much wisdom, much practical truth, so that we can say yes to it and apply it to our life and demonstrate that we are indeed in a covenant relationship with him. Well, I'll close with that. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week. <laughs>
May the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel.